Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome to another edition of BespokeCast. I'm George Perks, Bespoke's macro strategist, and we are very lucky this week to be joined by Karthik Sankaran, who is the head of uh, global strategy at uh, Eurasia Group. And... Is a fascinating person to talk to about financial markets, about global economics, and about the intersection between politics, uh, between geopolitics, and between the various levers that policymakers like central bankers and politicians can pull. Um, so this is going to be a great conversation. I'm really excited about this. Karthik, welcome to BespokeCast. Uh, really excited to be here, George. I think it would be great to start out with a background on your history. Um, you are very unique, I think, in financial markets as someone that has a PhD in something that's totally unrelated to finance and to um, the sort of day-to-day movement of financial assets. Um, so could we talk a little bit about how you um, pursued the various uh, pieces of paper that you have attached to your name now and how that helps you in your in your role? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, f- first of all, full disclosure, it's actually not a it's actually not a PhD. I got nine tenths of the way through my PhD and uh, then I dropped out. Um, but I do have one publication in a very obscure Italian journal. Um, no. Uh, so I my background is I'm a European historian by training. Um, I was uh, getting a PhD at Columbia. My I kind of got my master's in um, German history. Then my I was pursuing a doctorate in 19th century Italian history. And uh, somewhere along the way, um, about eight tenths of the way through, I realized that uh, that was a terrible idea because the only places where there are jobs for 19th century Italian historians are, are where they. In 19th century Italian historian has recently died or retired. Uh, not a lot of choice there, so I tried to find um, tried to find other things to do, and um, you know was extraordinarily lucky at each step of the way. I think that's something to uh, just um, emphasize. Uh, you know, just the role of the role of luck. So anyway, I ended up at a company that first of all organized. Uh, uh, conferences for direct investors in Eastern Europe. Uh, so I worked there for a bit. Uh, then the same company had uh, a newspaper uh, that they published at the annual meetings of the IMF, World Bank, and the Regional Development Banks. You've probably seen this if you go to the meetings. It slipped um, under your hotel door. Um, you have an exclusive. And I was managing editor of that for a while. And while I was there, uh, one of the things that... Um, while I was while I was the editor, I noticed that I had all these um, uh, stringers that we used to use to publish stories, who had these great stories in them. Um, but um, you know, they were just reporting on uh, stuff in the that was happening in markets. And so I came up with this idea 
to try to do something that would be kind of an economic version of a foreign affairs magazine. Uh, but I have all these fingers, and the idea was we'd keep doing things that were about the length of an economist insert. And um, I pitched this to someone that I knew in the financial markets, and he said, that's a terrible idea. Come work here instead. Everybody knows magazines lose money. So I ended up at AIG Trading, uh, which is the foreign exchange trading arm of um, AIG, not the part that blew up the world. <laughs> Important distinction there. This week was the 10-year anniversary of a $1.8 billion margin call from Goldman Sachs to AIG Financial Products, which, depending on how you measure it, could be judged as the start of the global financial crisis. Um, again, AIG Financial Products was the folks that were accumulating massive leveraged uh, super senior subprime uh, CDO positions, not humble uh, exchange uh, or foreign exchange trading. No, no, no. no, no, no. Not at all. Uh, but, you know, that was where, you know, I'd say that was kind of my biggest uh, break in terms of, um, I mean, the markets was while I was there. I was, I was originally hired as a research editor and um, a man named Bob Rubin who hired me, not the Bob Rubin. Uh, this was, this, there was another Bob Rubin who um, was uh, very senior at AIG Trading said we had this brilliant economist uh, named Bernard Connolly who writes these very long notes and we're concerned that no one is um, reading them so we need someone to edit them and so I kind of I was brought in to help um, to, to help edit his stuff which then meant kind of distilling it down to a few bullet points that traders could use I also started about two weeks before the Taibot devaluation uh, at which point the guys in the emerging market desk said, come sit next to us because there's all this political stuff going on. And it's probably important. Um, so I was there for about five and a half years and it was fantastic because I had the opportunity to work on a really top class um, emerging markets trading desk. Um, basically between, you know, for the entire cycle of devaluations that started with Thailand and then ended in Argentina uh, in December 2001. And at exactly the same time, I had access to, um, uh, you know, one of, a brilliant, a, a brilliant man, a brilliant mind, who essentially taught me open economy macroeconomics in prose. I'm hopelessly unmathematical, but I learned a lot because he would write these ten thousand word tomes um, that I would have to distill into a handful of bullet points. And I joked, I'm probably the only person who wrote, who's read everything that Bernard wrote for those six years. He was also a, um, a, a, a very, um, a, a very famous, uh, Eurosceptic. He had been an employee of the, of the, uh, commission and uh, then wrote a tell all book about the ERM crisis called the rotten heart of Europe. Um, you know, so it, 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 it was great because that interaction of politics and economics was something I was very interested in as a European historian. I was very interested in it, but what I got to learn was a huge amount of, um, of macro along the way. So that was until 2002. Then I went to Julius Baer, um, essentially got tired of the, uh, consequences of my social life of doing a reverse commute from New York to Greenwich, Connecticut every day. Um, I was there for about three years and then was at a global macro hedge fund for seven, uh, primarily currency and fixed income. We traded a lot of emerging markets, but obviously, uh, a lot of, um, Euro as well, uh, kind of fairly early on my tenure at, um, at AIG trading, I graduated from being a 
a just just an editor to being a to being a strategist putting out trade recommendations and so on um kind of and then i worked as a pm for seven years and then in 2013 uh the founder of my fund wanted to take the fund to be a family office and i decided i want to do something different with my life um you know i'm, I'm older i'm 53 i have uh, young kids spent a little more time with them i had been a client of eurasia group um you know, precisely because this, uh, this 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 interaction between politics and economics, which is so important, and I went to work for them. Now I try to connect the dots. I don't have a regional specialty. I'm obviously very interested in Europe still, but um, I'm there um, helping out uh, the analysts on the connections between politics and markets. I do a fair amount of uh, writing on my own. You know, I have a I have a you know, I, I I I have a blog for stuff that's a little more theoretical or or uh, or, or speculative. And that's that's and, projectcorman.tumblr.com, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it kind of a shout out to uh, you know someone. Um, initially, when I left um, when I left the fund, I thought I would go cold turkey. I did not. But I didn't sign up for the free Bloomberg. I just said, okay, I'm walking away from all of this. But I miss. I you know, I there's. I want. I realized I missed the intellectual aspects of the markets, uh, not necessarily, you know, the visceral ones, getting a call at 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon that you've been stopped at by someone in the Auckland time zone. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, you, you know, some of the other stuff. And uh, the, uh, a, a great uh, one of the, um, you know, one, one of the now departed uh, much... Um, uh, m- regrettably departed uh, uh, founders of finance Twitter, Pavel Morsky, whom I knew, uh, invited me onto Twitter and said, you're going to love it. Yeah, he, it's it's funny, the Twitter thing, like there are certain folks and, and the now Twitter departed Pavel Morsky was one of them. I, I knew him personally as well. Um, there are folks that play a huge role in creating community and inviting more people on and making things a bigger ship as opposed to just sort of doing what they do. And I, I think those sorts of people can can be extremely valuable and deserve a lot of credit. So shout out to the former Powell Morsky um, from Twitter and, and to folks that, that try and make the, the pie bigger for everyone, I think. Um, so, yeah, you're very active on Twitter and that's at Roger Corman on Twitter if people are interested in that. Um, so your career has very much been about sort of intellectual, top-down, non-numerical analysis, I think it's fair to say. And and that's really unique in a world where quants have sort of taken over. And even the sort of Excel quants that are doing historical analysis or who are cutting and dicing data in new ways and using indicators in new ways and that sort of thing, um, they've really become dominant in a lot of the discussion. So how do you sort of see yourself having had the career you've had without that numerical focus? Like what, what's been your, your source of, to use a numerical term, alpha in terms of analysis in a world that's very numerical? Um, I think, uh, you know, some of it, it was funny about the non-numerical stuff, right? You know, my blog is called Lots of Pointless Hand-Waving and I, you know, and that, that's it. I, you know, I, I refer to myself as being from the hand-waving school of uh, analysis because, um you know, I think some some macro talk is uh, and some macro research is like that. I think asset class matters a lot. Um, you know, one of the things I've always believed is precisely having kind of started and having spent a huge amount of time 
on foreign exchange in particular, I have referred in the past to foreign exchange as being a narrative asset class in the sense that it is driven by um, it's driven it's it's driven by it's driven by stories. In a sense, I think all assets are. It kind of you know I I, I joke that you know because she kind of just paraphrased that uh, Joan Didion line and say that we tell ourselves stories in order to trade. And I think it's particularly true in the case of foreign exchange, because one thing foreign exchange traders know is that um, there's really no, it's extraordinarily hard to kind of come up with a theory of valuation that defines a good trade. It's different from, you know, their PE ratios in the case of, you know, in, in, in the case of stocks, though, obviously, you know, I joke sometimes that the multiple or what happens to multiple pills is the pull it out of my ass factor in the equity market. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I think um, I think fixed income is uh, is potentially is possibly somewhat more grounded because they're two different things in short term rating in short term rates. It's what the central bank is going to do. Um, in uh, in 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 corporate in in corporate uh, bonds, it's recovery value. So there's something numerical that's attached to those. Though, as I said, you can get, you know, you you can see substantial deviations. I think in the case of foreign exchange, in particular, um, the one thing anyone who actually trades foreign exchange know or has traded it knows that whatever your notion of fair value, um, you know, currencies go through it for brief fleeting moments before overshooting in one in one direction or 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 another and and that's true too like for an from an entry perspective not just in terms of staying at sort of a target fair value level so one great example is the real effective exchange rate or behavioral effective exchange rate like that can give you an idea of a currency that's really rich or really cheap but it's totally useless as a trading model right like you can't it, it can help sort of inform where you're at, but it doesn't, you know, if you just use that as your input into trading FX, you're never going to make money. No, I, that's absolutely right. Because it, and one of the basic things is, you know, we've, we've tried to, uh, you know, we've tried to model this in different ways, but, you know, different points in my career. And the one thing that leaps out at you is that current account deficits are financed until they aren't. Uh, you know, just to, just to use a just to use one example, and um, you know, they may stop being financed at two percent. They may stop being financed at thirteen percent. Uh, you just don't know. So that's a terrible. You know, that's that's not a good trading strategy. I think the other thing that I've noticed over, you know, within my career itself is um, the data point that defines. You know that. Even behaviorally, just what people pay attention to uh, shifts a lot. So, for instance, um, I remember a time when the U.S. trade deficit used to be the most important number, uh, right? Because a dollar yen used to be driven by the size of the trade deficit in the late 80s, early 90s. Then there came a point briefly when uh, you cared about the tick data, even though it was backward looking because it told you something about um, the nature of financing of the U.S. current account deficit and whether it was good, whether it was bad. You know, in the early 2000s, you waited for the tick data for some reason. Uh, then there came a period when you were waiting for uh, the, un- the, unemploy- the unemployment data. So, you know, this is kind of one of these things that um, 
one of these pieces of hand waving that uh, that I've indulged in. Essentially, foreign exchange in particular is an asset class that's defined by you know for extended periods of time by a paradigm where people say, okay, this is what matters. This is what I'm going to pay attention to. And then, you know, just this is like Thomas Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolutions. There comes a point at which the you kind of realize it's not that data point that's moving the exchange rate. Things become unstable, and then you move to a brand new paradigm. And from a trading point of view, you know, I'd argue that the period in which you make the most amount of money in foreign exchange is if you're about a half a step ahead of the market in terms of pinpointing when that narrative is going to change. Um, take that as a bit of meta hand waving about a hand waving asset class, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, 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 I think there's something to that. It's also interesting, too, that you say that foreign exchange especially is a narrative asset class because when I did my analyst intake program back at uh, the investment bank I worked in right out of college, the sort of uh, story that was spun about different asset classes is that, okay, commodities, currencies, um, fixed income, you know, these are things that we can assign hard values to in a much easier way than equities where the only thing that matters with equities is stories because you know, businesses, understanding businesses can be boiled down into stories better. And that's what moves markets and equities as opposed to these sort of more mathematical or objective, you know, uh, asset classes. And the more I, you know, I, I really agree with you that FX is a very deeply narrative based um, asset class. And it's just funny that a lot of professionals would think about it differently um, because it's so closely associated with fixed income, which I think you make the, a very good case that it's the most objective um, sort of analytical approach. Um, the, the behavioral side of uh, FX is one of the most interesting things. There's just so much going on beneath the surface that you can't know in real time and sort of have to either sniff out through intuition or use other means to detect. Technical analysis would be one approach there. But um, I think that's a really interesting observation and stands in sharp contrast to what I was told earlier in my career. I, I mean, you just, you just need to look at it, you know, over the course of, you know, the, I mean, in the 20 years, uh, I mean, you do have, you know, the IMF puts out these things, right, that tell you, you know, the Peter, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Peterson Institute's, um, uh, you know, fear, fear calculations, for instance. The IMF puts out, um, you know, in the, in the Article 4 on their spillover reports, they talk about, uh, they talk about valuation. But the interesting thing about that, you know, I think there's kind of, I would say there's some analytical value to that. There's certainly a policy value to that. Um, but I mean, the point is that between the launch of the euro in 1999 um, and you know now you kind of start you launched at 119, went down to 82 cents, went up to 160, and now we're back at 118. You know, in the arc of you know like a, like in 18 years, and for what it's worth, I think it's the euro is about right, maybe slightly undervalued right now. But the issue is not so much that. The issue is that at every step of that way, you had people telling you that this is perfectly fine. It belongs here. Right. Um, 
you know, so that's, you know, that's what's interesting. And it, it kind of leads into a side, uh, you know, side issue of mine, which is less on the training side and kind of something that I've been thinking more about on the policy side, which is the role of large capital flows and how you deal with, you know, destabilizing deviations and things like that. But that's another matter. And that's, that's actually a really interesting topic that we should spend some time on, um, because I think it's become more in vogue recently. If you look at the work of um, Hyun Sung Shin at um, the uh, IMF, or if you look at the work of Michael Pettis with regards to China and Germany's current account surpluses, um, there was a really nice conversation with him in this past week conducted by Cardiff Garcia and um, Matt Klein of the FT's Alphaville blog. If, if, you, if anyone's interested in the sort of conversation we're having right now, you should definitely check that podcast out. Um, I, I, the the role of capital flows has become so important and is so um, misunderstood because economics in general is operating on a, on a uh, framework that came about in a time when trade flows dominated how uh, how markets moved across borders um, and now it's quite very much the opposite capital flows are drastically larger than trade flows by you know, at least an order of magnitude. And yet we're still focused on, you know, a lot of the time, the trade balance, the, um, you know, output numbers, the employment numbers, that kind of thing that, that really have nothing to do with capital flows. That, 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 that's absolutely right. And I think one of the issues here for policymakers is, and as you mentioned, you know, um, this is something that Hyun uh, Sung-shin has been involved with, but I think one of the interesting things that's happened more generally, and this kind of goes back to, you know, my, uh, you know, my, my own formal or my, my semi-formal training with uh, at AIG with Bernard is that I learned to believe a number of things um, and some of my intellectual activity since then I would characterize as an Oedipal revolt against the things I learned from him. One of which was that, uh, you know, it's very important to allow um, flows of private capital to proceed unimpeded because that ultimately leads to better outcomes. And I think one of the interesting things that's happened in the intellectual landscape over the last um, uh, over the last few years is the uh, you know kind of people like um, uh, Chin, but also Hélène Ray, uh, Olivier Blanchard. Uh, you know, basically uncovering this, uncovering this idea that there are certain circumstances in which um, the combination of very of completely open capital accounts and floating exchange rates can actually be increased instability rather than reduce it. So, in a sense, you know, uh, there's circumstances in which floating acts as a shock enhancer rather than a shock absorber. And to my mind, you know, if I can just spend a couple minutes on this, I think this is a very interesting and important uh, uh, finding. Uh, the way it proceeds, which is kind of what I focused on, which I haven't seen that much in, you know, some of this literature, is that there's a behavioral component in the sense that there's an idea that I learned, which is that you don't worry about current account deficits because they even out over time. And this is the idea that you get intertemporal smoothing. Basically, you borrow a lot right now. Um, but, you know, you'll invest it and then export that capacity. And then, you know, so if you have a strong currency right now associated with a very large current account deficit, then you don't need to worry about that because this represents a excess of investment over savings right now that's financed by the rest of the world. Things will change. It's going to be fine. I think as someone who's been involved 
with EM and watching the Eurozone crisis. Um, one of the things that you discover is that's not actually true. And I think one of the reasons for that is because these episodes of large cross-border flows associated with kind of strong exchange rates, whether in nominal terms or in real terms, you really need to look at what that investment is going into. And typically it goes into non-tradables, it goes into real estate, which is exactly the kind of capacity that is extraordinarily hard to mobilize uh, to export once the cycle turns and your currency weakens. Um, you know, of all the countries that I've seen over the years that have actually kind of in a way done this right, run large deficits, invest in tradable capacity during the boom period, have a bust, export their way out of the mess, and everything is fine. The only one I can think of is Korea 97, 98. And arguably that's ongoing today in in South Korea. I mean, if you look at South Korea's current account deficit or sorry, surplus now, it's very clear that their their economy is structurally set up to uh, push relatively weak domestic demand still onto the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the concepts, you know, th- th- there's this kind of bigger, you know, there's something that, uh, you know, you probably talked about it and Mark's been on, but this sense that- that's a re- that's a reference to Mark Dow. Sorry. Our, our first episode, if you're interested in li- going back and listening to that one, yeah, it, it's this idea that I mean, across Asia, and this is kind of where the politics and geopolitics kind of intersects with the economics uh, in the sense that there is such a, there's a perception that running into an external financing constraint, looking for concessional assistance, then leads to, um, you know, you go to the fund, you go wherever. Uh, That's uh, the fund, it's International Monetary Fund. um, You know, they impose conditions on you that um, are politically unpalatable. And I think particularly in the Asian case, uh, the result of 97-98 was an extraordinary determination to avoid, um, you know, ever having to do that again because of the way it was seen as interfering with a domestic political and economic model. And so there's a reliance on self-insurance that then creates these problems for the rest of the world because precisely because you're building up these large, you're building up these extraordinarily large uh, current account surpluses. But in part, that's because the prescriptions that are given to you during the process of conditional and concessional assistance are seen as being biased in someone else's favor. Yeah, it does. And it's an interesting question as to whether um, the conditional assistance. So, you know, a lot of what you would see in that sort of um, policy situation is the International Monetary Fund coming in and applying the what's been referred to as the Washington Consensus. That's now less of a consensus to be sure, but in the past, the idea that there needs to be large-scale privatization, there needs to be fiscal retrenchment, so on and so forth. Um, generally speaking, it's upsetting the apple cart domestically, and uh, Asian uh, post-Tiger crisis economies really didn't get, I don't think, the worst of that in the IMF's history. I think if you look at a at, at countries in um, Africa or Latin America, it's it's been much more severe. Um, but the impulse to avoid that, I think, especially to an American, should be should be quite obvious, right? You know, we don't like people coming in and telling us how to operate, and that's essentially what the IMF did as a as a strategy for for years to increase liberalization 
um, in periods when economies needed bridge financing of one kind or another. Um, so that that is a really interesting angle. I, I don't think that's one I've heard before, but it, it makes perfect sense that the domestic politics would act to protect uh, the policy goals that the citizenry and especially elites within the country want to protect. Do you think that sort of framework, you know, wanting to protect domestic choices is something you can apply in the eurozone these days as well yeah i mean i i, I think it's actually you know i i think it's something that um i i use universally right i mean it's not just it, it's not just it, it's not just in the european case i think it's you know i think it's also happening in the u.s and the uk i mean in the european case i think i also like to use this this idea that what you need is um i mean i think the way you have to look at europe in particular is you have to look at it in terms of three levels of, uh, I say you need to look at it in terms of three levels of politics. There's national politics, there's inter-European politics, and then there is a, and then there is a global context uh, within which the European construction, uh, within which the European construction operates. And you know, I think one of the interesting things to me, and this kind of reflects my own, you know, my own, uh, my own, my own kind of intellectual evolution on the subject, is I learned. I always say, as I say, you know, everything I think I know, um, I learned during those years at the launch of the euro, working for a uh, and with a brilliant euro skeptic and watching currency pegs blow up one after another from Asia to Russia to Turkey to Argentina. Um, and the expectation was that this would actually happen in, you know, in, 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 in Europe as well. Um, sometime around 2010, um, kind of the middle of 2010, I think right after the founding of um, the EFSF, um, you know, came to the conclusion that maybe this is different precisely because the extent to which um, you know, the country or the countries at the center of the system uh, are invested in keeping the whole edifice together is vastly greater than was the case um, in the different dollar pegs that blew up, for instance. It didn't really matter uh, to the extent to which the United States cared that Argentina was blowing out, was blown out of its currency board um, you know, it didn't affect U.S. fiscal policy. It didn't affect, at the margin, it might have affected U.S. monetary policy, but that was more because of spillbacks due to the Asian crisis. I think what we've seen in the European case, and I think Anglo-American observers have persistently underestimated, is the desire um, of elites in Europe to keep the construction together, and I think in particular, I think particularly this, there's an analytical issue here, which is, um, you know, people keep saying, oh, it's like Argentina, oh, it's like the gold standard, um, and I would argue that, in economic terms, there there are two huge differences, uh, both of which kind of come to, uh, you know, come down to the come down to the ECB, which belatedly. I think has done two things that gold standard regimes didn't didn't do. Uh, one is, or three things actually. One is basically through the operation of Target Two to absorb, to be willing to absorb practically unlimited shifts in um, investors' desire 
to hold what within the context of um, the eurozone might be considered emerging market debt, right? So you had these extraordinary target to imbalances that reflected core capital flowing back uh, to the core away from the periphery. I think the high was about 750 billion euros and the ECB absorbed that. The Fed never did that. And the second thing is, so, you know, that, and this is important because if you think about the ebb and flow of large capital flows as being what determines kind of currency crises, for instance, uh, that it was internalized within, that was oper- internalized within the operation of uh, Target 2 at the ECB. The second thing is uh, something that's a little more akin to um, classic IMF operation, which is providing concessional financing in return for uh, conditionality, and that's the way the OMT operates. The whatever takes speech is like, okay, you know, we will peg your short-term yields because the currency union is irreversible, but in exchange for that, you need to do certain things. And the third thing is QE. So, um, you know, so I think in, in the, so the point here is that you can look at national politics within single European countries, which are structured around, let's say, kind of reform fatigue versus bailout fatigue. Um, reform fatigue at the periphery, bailout fatigue at the core. I think that moment is, you know, past to some extent, or a substantial extent, just because of where we are in the cycle. Then you look at intra-European politics, which... Um, have a lot to do with the nature of the interaction, I think, between the two, two principles, France and Germany. And, and then the third set of things, which I think is very, very important, is where Europe thinks it fits in to the world as a whole. And for what it's worth, my belief at this point is that the National politics are getting better. The intra-European politics have also become uh, somewhat more favorable in the sense that what one of the things that Macron's election does is it persuades, or it is intended to persuade Germany that France is a reliable partner. It's not going to kind of agitate on behalf of the more um, structurally recalcitrant members of the Eurozone, which is, in a sense, has always been French policy for extended stretches of time, starting with Trichet and the strong French-Frank policy um, you know, in the late 80s or, or, or early 90s. But the third thing, which is very important, is this European sense that they are now in their hang-together or hang-separately moment, precisely because the U.S., um, uh, Russia, the UK are all significantly more unpredictable. So the sense that you need to create something that is capable of standing up to a world that would otherwise be dominated by China and the United States, uh, and the United States that's in, you know, in some ways perceived as significantly more unreliable right now, um, I think that's where Europe is. So anyway, it's almost like like the European system has through a variety of different I'm just going to launch into a sort of a metaphor here to sum up what you've just said. Um, The way the classic analysis is that the Europeans, 
the European system has a very weak immune system and has exposure to all these germs of national politics, whether it's the um, economic setup of a place like Italy or the um, debt crisis in a place like Spain or the possible move towards, um, you know, sort of neoclassical right wing or sorry, neo modern right-wing politics from someone like Le Pen in France. So there are all these germs attacking the European system. What you're saying essentially is that people are underestimating not only the fact that there are treatments for this, whether it is the ability to facilitate capital flows via Target 2 between various countries, um, the ability to peg short-term rates via uh, OMT, or the ability to influence long rates via um, QE. You're also saying that the European immune system is much stronger than people give credit for, especially in a situation where it's freed to do what it's supposed to do in reaction to outside bugs. So in a sense, the sort of flu from the United States with the election of Donald Trump in terms of Europe's safety and stability in the world prompts an immune response that also helps fight these other bugs. And by the way, you've got a shot of antibiotics courtesy of ECB President Draghi. Is that sort of a good metaphor for how... I, I think that's a great metaphor, and it's a, it's, it's a very succinct summation of a lot of hand-waving, so thank you, George. But that's, you know, that, that, that's, exa that, that's exactly it. You're very welcome, and it's funny how, you know, sometimes careers go in circles, right? Like before you were summarizing the 10,000-word essays, and now I'm doing that for you. <laughs> But yeah, no, I think I think regardless of how you phrase it succinctly or in a longer, you know, uh, verbal essay, I, I think it's a very good point. And it remains shocking to me how persistently underestimated the European system has been by not just global uh, thinkers, but but specifically Anglo-based thinkers, whether it's people in the United States or the United Kingdom. There are some other examples, but those are the primary sort of um, folks that tend to doubt the European system and doubt that the political desire for cohesion and a unified Europe via currency, via politics, so on and so forth, is going to be stood in the way of by you know these these economic factors. Recently, you've sort of introduced this 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 euroskeptic point and turned it on turned it on its head and said, well, hold on, we really should have Anglo skeptics, right? People that are skeptical of the institutions and capabilities of places like the United Kingdom or the United States, these large current account deficit runners, these sort of um, globe straddling uh, empire, maybe a little bit of an uh, exaggeration, but certainly something along those lines that. Um, were perceived as invulnerable and have shown in the last 24 months, 18 months or so, to be quite the opposite, right, uh, on a political vector. So um, can you sort of talk about that concept of Anglo-skepticism and how that is the inverse of Euroscepticism? I mean, this is a, this is, this, this results from a, from a, uh, uh, inspired or not, depending on your point of view, tweet as of uh, like five o'clock yesterday. So this is a, uh, you know, uh, hot off the what passes for presses my mind. But no, 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 but I, th I think the underlying point is that if you think about, um, and, and this, this ties into a, you know, the larger question about globalization that's, um, you know, that, 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 that has become such a, that has become, that has become such a, has become such a focus in significant part because, it's something people could perceive. It's how national political arguments have been um, 
has been structured kind of globalist versus nationalist, but also because of the very, very important work of uh, Branko Milanovic, right, looking at the winners and losers from uh, globalization. Just a quick aside, I'm just going to describe the elephant chart really quick. So if you take a look at the global income distribution um, now versus, I think it's 20 years ago, it might be 30 or 40 years ago, but the basic takeaway is that there have been an enormous number of winners at the very high end. So the very top of the global inst uh, income distribution has risen in terms of real income dramatically. The middle has risen dramatically. There has been less success at the very low end of the global income distribution and then at around the 90th percentile, which is basically the middle classes of the developed world. So you've seen uh, tons of success in moving people out of abject poverty into middle income status and growing incomes for the middle and lower classes of the developed world and even to some extent in or in, uh, of the developing world and even to some extent in developed economies. Where you've run into trouble is that real incomes for the middle of the distribution in in uh, developed economies have, have run into major headwinds in terms of real income growth while uh, the upper classes in developed economies have done phenomenally well. So that, if you can sort of imagine, that looks like an elephant. Um, if you graph the income distribution on the horizontal axis and the change in real income on the vertical axis. So just to give people a sort of, a, if they hadn't seen that chart, that's what we're talking about here. Thanks, George. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. And I think one of the interesting things about that is if you kind of look at, um, you know, I think the U.S. and the U.K., uh, were in different ways the countries that, up to a certain point, uh, you know, most uh, the most openly embraced em embraced this model. There were more, you know, the Euro continental Europeans were uh, were somewhat less um, were somewhat less enamored of all its aspects. And the interesting thing is, if you look at charts that show what happened to after-tax outcomes in, say, Western Europe versus the United States, you see kind of very, very different results. So in the French case, for instance, um, yes, it's a large state. It's, um, um, you know, it's, it's high taxes. It is uh, accused as a result of this, in my view, unreasonably of being, um, of having, of having low productivity, which I think is wrong because that's flat out. No, that that is wrong. If you look at labor productivity, it's virtually the same for Germany, the United States, and and um, France. I mean, it, it's it's really not a material difference between them. So, just a statistical note there. No, and, and, and but I mean that pays. You know that that that, that does pay. Uh, uh, that does play a part in how I think people in Anglo-America view, um, view the continent. But my, my point here is that it's possible that, sh that the extent to which globalization impacted the social fabric uh, was significantly greater in the U.S. and the U.K. precisely because of the absence of uh, or you know, a significantly more frayed safety net. Well, no, I mean, that's that's absolutely the case. I mean, just, just to sort of back out a little bit here, what you're talking about is that when free trade comes in, you have winners and losers within the domestic economy. In aggregate, free trade should improve overall social outcomes for everybody. Or sorry, um, overall social outcomes in aggregate. But there are distributional consequences. So you have people who, you know, in the United States, for instance, low middle income uh, manufacturing jobs, they get hurt, whereas consumers as a whole get a small gain. And the small number of manufacturing jobs that are hurt um, are are 
offset by the massive small for individuals but massive in aggregate consumer gains from lower prices higher productivity so on and so forth so you know in economics it's it's not controversial to say that the problem is that we never did anything to ameliorate those effects in in anglo economies we have a sort of a a, a preternatural dislike of redistributionary policies relative to what other developed economies pursue a place like france or germany would be a good example so you know, Coase theorem would say, oh, well, you know, if you have all these benefits and they're they're positive, what you do is you take a little bit of the benefit from every of the gains, you pull that together and you offset the losses for somebody that that didn't do as well. And then everybody's better off and you ameliorate the distributionary con distributional consequences of the aggregate gains. The problem is we hate redistribution in, in, in the Anglo model, and there are good and bad reasons for that. I, I don't I think we can say without making a normative judgment call whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know. We don't have to say, oh, well, we should like redistribution more or that, oh, not liking redistribution is the right way to go. Regardless, if you have free trade and you have these distributional consequences of it, you then, if you don't have redistributionary policy to to apply Coase theorem to the economy as a whole, you get these large negative impacts on specific populations and the small benefits don't really get noticed by most people, even though they are material. Exactly, and and which then leads to a political, which then leads to a political backlash, and right. that's you know I think both in the case of Brexit and what's happening over here right now, uh, in the United States, I think there's, I think to some degree bears that out, and the nature of the political backlash, I think from the point of view of uh, kind of economics and um, you know and 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 asset and asset markets for that matter, is that. You can get a coalition that is that is nominally on the on 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 the on the right, but ends up being much more hostile to globalization. Does substantial you know can do substantial damage to uh, to to growth and to efficiency. I think Brexit's a very clear example of of this. I would argue that even in the case of the United States, you know what you're seeing with some of the policies. Um, you know, the, uh, of the administration is, you know, is, you know, is what I call a producer's cartel that unites labor and capital in some of the less globally competitive um, US, U.S. sectors, for instance. So, you can, you know, if you can kind of get the steel and aluminum sectors of the United States kind of unite labor and capital together um, in, you know, in favor of high tariff regimes, that has that has growth impact, that has inflation impact, that worsens growth inflation trade-offs. Um, and I think something like this is happening in these areas precisely because of the backlash uh, against, um, you know, against some of the more untrammeled consequences of, uh, of globalization, which, the, which in some ways, the, you know, the continental European models may have avoided precisely because the you know the 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 variance of the volatility around social consequences that resulted from this has been um, has been lowered. So that kind of so that kind of concern about what's happening on the supply side um, in the U.S. in the U.K. because of these politics, because of these coalitions that are you know that are characterized as kind of import substitution populism with a tinge of authoritarianism 
and I grew up in Indira Gandhi's India, so this resonates a lot with me. Um, you know, that's kind of what I think of as, uh, you know, being the intellectual basis, such as it is, for what I would characterize as Anglo-skepticism. Yeah, because in the long run, and, you know, it is interesting, too, that, that in, okay, so in early 2017, late 2016, I think it was easier to make the case that though that, that, um, that political um, strategy and political viewpoint that you're describing, it was much easier to make the case that it was that it's ascendant. Um, now, if you look at the concrete policy steps taken by the Trump administration, or if you look at the rebuke that was dealt to Theresa May's conservatives in the United Kingdom following Brexit, the snap election that resulted in a huge gain for labor, um, you know, different view of the world, not maybe the most different, not necessarily as different as Democrats and Republicans in the United States, but certainly different than than May's vision. Um, it, it appears that, that that there are limits to what the people who are running the system um, will be able to do on this sort of Bannon-esque axis that you've described. Do you think that we're in a pause for that, or do you, or do you think that that we've sort of reached the natural limit? And you know, the traditional um, in the United States, it would be you know Republican priorities around tax cuts being more important. Um, for instance, do you think that's going to win out, and the inertia will will push back down this sort of populist um, labor capital? Uh, alliance for uncompetitive sectors versus the rest of the world. Do you, how do you think about that? I, I think I, I think the case is different, you know, between the UK and the US in that regard, right? Because I would argue that in the case of the UK, um, you have a you have an alliance that's, you know, you know, neither of us are British, but uh, you know, we we talk to a lot of uh, you know either in person or in 140 characters at a time to a number of people. <laughs> I'll be over there next week, by the way, and I'm I'm looking quite forward to to getting in person contact with with some folks on this stuff. Anyhow, go ahead. Uh, in the UK, so I think there the coali- you know, the coalescence both on the left and on the right uh, around um, around something that I. I think that still looks like import substitution populism is quite strong, but there's very big divergences between the left and the right. Uh, but, you know, it does seem as though um, the, now that you've had the, um, the kind of a soft Brexit or no Brexit constituency is primarily an elite constituency right now, because even among notwithstanding labor strength, uh, what we're hearing from labor politicians does not sound terribly different from what you're hearing from uh, conservative politicians on things like freedom of movement. On right. Yeah. Uh, I think the U.S. is interesting and different. And here it really feels much more like, um, you know, complete Sukhsvan. You know, there's actually one of the reasons we haven't seen anything is because nothing has happened. I mean, you're experiencing one party gridlock in part because of um, it, in part because of differences, uh, you know, within um, within within the uh, within the Republican conference, uh, in part because there is. You know, there's a political aspect to this, you know, such as in something like um, 
you know, backing away from the border from the border adjustable tax. And some of it is is purely administrative. You know, it it, it seems extraordinarily hard to actually get anything done. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, th- I think that that point is important. One of the great weaknesses and strengths, I again, many of these political discussions, it's really important to frame that I don't think either of us are necessarily taking a normative position, but trying to discuss things in positive terms. And in positive terms, the United States political system is shockingly averse to change, right? The fact that you have to get 60 senators, you know, which by definition of how the Senate is set up must be deeply, deeply geographically diverse uh, to to represent a certain policy. Uh, you know, you can do some stuff through reconciliation. We've, we've tried that um, with the healthcare stuff and hasn't worked either. But to get real material policy change through, you need 60 senators. And that's not even looking at the more population-weighted House or the presidency. Um, so this this system in the United States is deeply conservative in the sense that it is resistant to change. And getting big stuff done, like, for instance, pivoting the U.S. approach to globalization, is really, really hard. And there, that's got nothing to do with the politics in the current day. It's purely about structure. That's right. And But at the same time, I think the marginal impulse, you know, and I, this is kind of, I, I think the UK is the clearest case. And one of the ways you can actually see that, um, you know, this goes back to, um, you know, kind of more pure asset market, a more pure asset market point of view is, you know, because we talk about we talk a lot about central banks and stuff like that. So, yeah, in the UK's case, essentially you have you've had a massive negative supply and trade shock that's that's resulted from Brexit that's going to continue, and that you know that changes the way the Bank of England operates. In the U in the, in the US case, the op you know. The opposite has happened in the sense that everything that people thought on November 9th that, okay, we know how this works, we're going to have massive fiscal expansion and a huge monetary policy offset just because, A, we're going to get these huge tax cuts, there's going to be a big infrastructure program, and the Republicans like like hawkish fed, like a hawkish Fed anyway. What's happened is actually none of that has come to pass, right? So And doesn't look like it will anytime soon either. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And here too, you know, the, you know, the the inclination of the Republican Party seems to be go on to do, go, go on to do something on taxes, which may happen in 2018. Now you have the president insisting that you focus on health care yet again, even though um, it is an enormously fraught issue politically. So, you know, we could end up going nowhere. But two things: one is that the, you know, the marginal impulse on um, in terms of improved supply side, I think. You know, may look somewhat better um, in Europe than in the U.S. or the U.K. I think the second thing that you know, because I suppose we talk a little bit about asset markets at least, is exactly what you think of as what is the appropriate level of risk premium for political events or, or geopolitical events in one part of the world versus another. And that means, you know, politics, administrative capacity, all these other things seems to be tilting slightly away from, you know, or not even necessarily slightly away from the Anglosphere. Well, with that, we will move on to our closing segment here. Um, We like to do uh, this thing called trading rich, trading cheap. I'm going to throw out something and you're going to tell me whether it's trading rich or trading cheap. And it's not financial markets related usually. So uh, we will, you know 
just use that as a caveat. You don't have to tell us where the 10-year yield's going. Um, so one of my favorite meals I had in New York while I lived there for four years was uh, an evening at a Chinese restaurant that you took us to um, in Midtown. Is uh, Chinese food in New York City specifically trading rich or trading cheap? I think it's trading cheap. It's gotten much, it's gotten much better the last few years. <laughs> uh, what's, where's your favorite place to go? Um, I, I like... Um... I'm a big fan of Grand Sichuan Imperial, uh, which is on 24th and 9th. And uh, the place we went was uh, Legend, which is Asian fusion. Stay away from the fusion. Stick with the Sichuan. <laughs> and it was delicious. The jellyfish, phenomenal. Okay. Um, trading rich or trading cheap, uh, independent research. We've got MF, MI, MFID2 in the U, Eurozone and UK that's going to have a big impact on how research works over there. Uh, Eurasia Group is a little bit different from classic financial market research, but at the end of the day, you guys are, are selling your opinion and your analysis on things related to financial markets. Um, do you think that we're going to see some you know, sort of minor renaissance for independent research or that uh, independent research is going to have a harder time competing as um, other research publishers, namely big sell-side banks, switch to a model where they have to charge for their research? I think, yeah, you know, I honestly think one of the issues for independent research and for bank research for that matter is, um, um, you know, I think it'll do well, but part of it is that, you know, part of the problem is that there are people like you, the people that we know, um, you know, all of whom are engaged. I think one of the amazing and wonderful things about technology is that it's actually possible to create, um, you know, kind of intellectual horizontals that go beyond uh, your workplace, right? So you and I can interact, have very interesting discussions. You can do the same via Twitter, via blogs. Um, you know, you can access on a D Square Digest on European banking. Uh, you know, and you have all these you have all these providers. So I, you know, I think one of the issues for everybody is that collectively this interaction makes everyone better it makes everyone smarter the problem is if some of what makes everyone smarter is available for free how do the fee-paying providers react I mean, to me that's the bigger that that that, that, that that's a question that uh, everybody has to face so basically a large negative price shock to the sector yeah, but, but but a positive supply, as with many, uh, this would be an example, I guess, of good deflation, right? right? You know, very lovely positive supply shock where everyone gets smarter, but that's because people are doing kind of labor. It's like a labor of love for everybody. <laughs> okay, last one. You speak to varying degrees, uh, four languages, is it? No, five languages. Um, Hindi, Italian, French, German, and of course, English, as we've been conversing in. Uh, do you think that multilingualism is something that's trading rich or trading cheap? I, I you know, I, I think about the impact that the dispersion of English as the language of international um, cross-border activity of all kinds, um, science, business, uh, politics, so on and so forth, has, has had. Do you think we're headed for a world where people just add languages to be more uh, be better understood where they need to, or do you think we're headed for a world where the diversity of, of human language slows down um, and becomes, uh, well, less less diverse because English is the, the lingua franca? Um, unfortunately, probably the latter, but at the expense of you know, but at the expense of a lot of richness. I mean, something anthropologists already know, like you know, I mean, you know, lots and lots of languages. Um, 
you know, lots of languages keep, you know, have died out and will probably continue to die out. Probably not the major ones, but a lot of, you know, uh, small languages in Southeast Asia, uh, in South America, or in North America for that matter, there are fewer and fewer speakers. So the trend is, the trend is there, but, you know, there are levels of richness uh, that come from, you know, from having languages, and one of the things, you know, I, I, you know, in fact, I, you know, I, I failed at this. Uh, my wife, uh, my wife, constantly berates me for the fact that my children are 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 monoglots, and I feel, you know, and I, and I failed because one of the things I know from experience is that you know, second languages are hard, third languages are easy. So, well, that is it for bespoke cast for this week. We've had Karthik Sankaran uh, on really fantastic conversation and I think really nice to delve into some sort of qualitative and and uh, you know more high level discussion than a lot of the stuff we typically get into so thanks very much for joining us Karthik and we'll hope to see you soon thanks a lot George uh, this was really fun I really appreciate it thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.